Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, listeners. It is Friday, July 9th. How are you? We know where you are, or at least we're guessing that half of you are on a vacation somewhere, as you should be. We wish we were enjoying a beautiful vista right now, but one of these days it'll happen. In the meantime, we are happy to be here bringing you an interview with two venture capitalists who left their enviable roles with established and well-funded firms to take a gamble on each other with a brand new firm. We wrote about that outfit, Renegade Partners, a little earlier this week for TechCrunch, but stay tuned for our longer conversation with the duo to hear much more, including about the trends they're following. It's coming up right after we run through a couple of this week's biggest stories in tech. President Biden today signed a sweeping executive order that promises to increase the heat on FANG stocks. Among other provisions, the measure will encourage regulators at the FTC and FCC to take into account the fast-moving business models of tech companies when evaluating mergers and acquisitions. The order follows hard on the heels of a series of antitrust lawsuits aimed at Facebook's acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp that the government lost in large part because it did not act quickly. Ultimately, the judge wrote, this antitrust action is premised on public high-profile conduct, nearly all of which occurred over six years ago before the launch of the Apple Watch or Alexa or Periscope, when Kevin Durant still played for the Oklahoma City Thunder and when Ebola was the virus-dominating headlines. Still, acting quickly is not a panacea. Biden's executive order will do nothing to change antitrust laws, which Senator and Judiciary Committee member Richard Blumenthal views as antiquated. Progressives and economists have long called for more competition in the U.S. economy, and FTC Chair Lena Kahn and Tim Wu, a Columbia University law professor and special advisor to the Biden administration on competition, are undoubtedly primed to break up tech monopolies. Federal scrutiny of Amazon's purchase of MGM is a prime example. Still, it's important to remember that both the FTC and the FCC are independent agencies. The president cannot tell them what to do. And until Congress can pass updated antitrust legislation, it's doubtful that the courts will suddenly decide to look at past precedent any differently than before. In the end, this executive order may be better known as a nothing burger than a silver bullet. And that is a shame. One of the big stories of the week, and a bit of a shocker, centers on Instacart, the on-demand grocery startup that's preparing to become a public company. Yesterday, Fiji Simo, the leader of Facebook's namesake app, said she's leaving the social network to become Instacart's CEO, while Apoorva Mehta, who founded the company in 2012 and has led it as CEO since, becomes its executive chairman. Much ado was made of the move for a handful of reasons. First, Simo is apparently a rock star, and this is a big loss for Facebook, which, according to the information, has already lost at least 55 engineers, product managers, recruiters, designers, and data scientists to Instacart just this year. Such widespread poaching has to be infuriating to Mark Zuckerberg, while also perhaps exhilarating to Google execs, considering that Facebook once did the same to Google. In fact, Google once contemplated a policy in which it would make counteroffers to workers who were offered jobs at Facebook within one hour of the offer, as leaked years ago to the Wall Street Journal. 
Yesterday, it was widely reported that Meta, Instacart's founder, was the one who brought in Simo as a director on his board, and then decided more recently to replace himself as CEO if only she would take his job. The information says he even drove to her house in Carmel Valley to pitch her on the CEO opportunity. Maybe that happened, but something doesn't add up here, and it might be the numbers inside of Instacart, whose business soared at the outset of the pandemic, but has tapered off in the U.S. as the impacts of the coronavirus fade into the distance. It could also be a cultural issue. We don't doubt that Instacart will benefit from having Simo in charge, particularly given that the app has at times been criticized widely in the past, including for a since-ended approach to tipping that its contract workers said was exploitative. As it moves toward the public market, starting with fresh management makes a lot of sense. At the same time, Meta is no shrinking violet. This is an ambitious individual whose company has raised $2.7 billion from private investors and whose model has been copied all over the world. We have a hard time imagining he would rather step aside than lead it as a public company CEO, especially when all of his contemporaries are doing exactly that, including Tony Zhu of DoorDash, Brian Chesky of Airbnb, and Brian Armstrong of Coinbase. We could be flat wrong, and Meta is just highly aware of his limitations and thought it was time to hand over the reins. But we also won't be surprised if there's another shoe that drops here. Up next, our interview with Renegade Partners. But first, a word from our sponsor. TechCrunch Disrupt is three virtual days of nonstop online programming with two big focuses, founders and investors shaping the future of technology and startup experts providing insights to entrepreneurs. It's where hundreds of startups across a variety of categories tell their stories to 10,000 plus influencers from all around the world. Tune in to conversations with Brian Armstrong of Coinbase, Bryn Putnam of Mirror, and Chamath Palhapatiya of Social Capital, among other one-on-one talks you won't want to miss. Go to techcrunch.com slash events for more information today. And now our interview with Roseanne Winsek and Renata Quintini, the co-founders of Renegade Partners, a venture firm that the two formed in late 2019 after leaving their respective roles with the established firms IVP and Lux Capital to build their own brand. Their timing wasn't great. As you'll hear Quintini tell it, the two were in the middle of fundraising when COVID-19 began its creep across the U.S. Still, the two wound up raising what we think is one of the biggest first-time funds for women VCs, a feat they credit to their past successes, including investing in the autonomous car company Cruise, the satellite company Planet, the logistics company Keep Truckin', and the cosmetics company Glossier, among many other previous investments. We talked with the two earlier this week about this past year and where they're putting that fresh capital. We're so happy to have Renata Contini and Roseanne Winsack here today joining us from Renegade Partners. Guys, I'm so happy for you. We've been hearing about this fund for a long time. How much did you raise? So we close on $100 million and we're really excited to tell you what we're invested in. Great. Well, so first of all, let's back up a second. You both worked for these top firms where people would probably shiv someone to get a job. So what drove you to leave them and who jumped first and reached out to whom? Oh, I don't know if there was a jumping first. We talk a lot about like, what's our meet cute story, but Renata and I have known each other for about a decade now. We first met when 
I was at Canaan and she was at Felicis. And I like to joke, there's not that many women in venture. There were like way less back then. And so when I joined, they were like, oh, there's a new one. Come meet everybody. Right. And so that's how we first met. And uh, a couple of years ago, or over the years, we had looked at a lot of stuff together, especially then I moved to IVP, and we would track specific firms for specific people. I was always bugging Renata about what was in her portfolio. And then a few years ago, we were at this dinner, and that's one of those like big, boozy dinners. And it's a bunch of people our age at a bunch of firms, we're all having the conversation like, oh, if I had my own firm, I would do this, and I would do that. And... Renata and I were finishing each other's sentences. And I remember going up to her and saying like, we should have this conversation for real, but maybe with less wine. And that was Memorial Day of 2019. And so we started nights and weekends working on it. And the truth is we were good friends. We knew that we got along and she's a phenomenal investor, right? I knew her track record, but frankly, we didn't know if we would be good co-founders. And so we know that that's the biggest risk, right? Like we are the big risk. So we actually hired a coach and we did what we jokingly refer to as marriage counseling, but we did a lot of work about how we handle stress, what success looks like, what our values are to make sure that we were really aligned. Because as you said, we were at great firms, we had great spots, we didn't have to go anywhere. But part of it was this idea around launching something new. But the other piece of that is, are you actually doing that with the right person? And with somebody that you really are going to bet your career on. That's interesting. And you two were saying before we hit record that you had to spend a lot of time in hotel rooms as well (laughs) on your fundraising. Any revelations about each other that you learned uh, on the road? Well, on the road, Roseanne is more of a morning person than I am. And she has the funniest choices for alarm, ring alarm. So it was Celine Dion playing this like horrible deep piano that I call the piano of death, waking us up at six o'clock in the morning, New York time. So it was like three Pacific. No, but it's like, it's one of those things where like when you're on the road, when you share routine and we've seen each other through the ups, the downs. So we had our first close on March 13th, Friday, like the weekend right before COVID. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So the Princess Cruise was coming into the bay. And we're on the phone with the LPs. And we didn't know are people going to come through what's going to happen. Right. And you get to learn a lot about people and the values were always there. Renegade always comes first. It was never about me or her. It was like, let's do what's right for Renegade. Let's do what's right for LPs, bringing in that energy. And and I couldn't share this with anyone better. Did you have to put a pin in things for a period? I remember interviewing people back in March and April, and these LPs said, we're trying to regain our footing. Really, the managers that we're backing are people that we've backed before. We're a little bit nervous about backing emerging managers. And of course, you both have great track records individually, but I just wonder if that did impact you. I don't think it would have happened otherwise, right? If we didn't have the track record we had, like all of that stuff to draw from. We are very lucky that we're backed by institutional LPs, Ivy League endowments, foundations, family offices, et cetera. But we did not factor in COVID. And I think we were also lucky in that we were already at the tail end of the process. We already had docs out. But when we had our close, one of our LPs the following Monday texted us about shelter in place. I found out about shelter in place from one of our LPs. And at that moment, nobody knew what was happening. The world was going so sideways. And we had enough capital to get going. And we said, let's just be heads down, build our team, start building our portfolio and the rest will fall into place. And we're really lucky that that's how it ended up. Renata, you were on the LP side working for Stanford's endowment before jumping into venture capital. Can I ask a Stanford an investor? We're not allowed to disclose. It is another Ivy League, not Stanford. 
Okay. And what did you used to look for as an LP? And then based on your conversations over the last year with VCs, what's changed, if anything? The conversations are always around superior access and consistency, right? Mm -hmm. Because VC is not an asset class for arbitrage. You may be very clever for a very short period of time, but number one, capital is everywhere and is abundant. And number two, it takes so long that to just be a flash in the pan doesn't work for VC. So this conversation around, okay, what is your unique insight and how is that sustainable has always been the case. And I'll say that that experience was so valuable for what we're building here at Renegade. So to go back in time, I was at the Stanford Endowment in 2007. So on, on one side of the house, it was right the, the beginning of the global financial crisis, the whole liquidity conversation and like, let's sell $2 billion of illiquid assets because private uh, public market valuations just went down so dramatically right. on one side of the house. And then on the other side of the house, you had folks like Andreessen Horowitz, Founders Fund, First Round, Floodgate, Felices, all those guys kind of knocking on the door and say, hey, I'm either starting a fund or I'm going institutional, talk to me. And there I was in the Stanford Endowment, the, the world's premier venture capital portfolio. And that question around, okay, why does the world need another venture capital firm was very, very apropos back then and it is now. Mm. And if you actually think about the problem from a supply of capital perspective, there are always going to be established brands. There are always going to be people with more money than you. And technically, a reason for you to start doesn't exist, right? But you actually need to look at things from the entrepreneur journey perspective. And back then, all of a sudden, you had global computing, cloud computing, mobile computing, and global distribution channels. So it actually became 10x cheaper to start. And product market fit as a problem became completely different for founders. And that's why those new firms really had a reason to be and resonate with founders. And today they're established firms. So that paradigm, like, hey, why does the world need another venture capital firm is something that we bring forward to today. And we really wanted to answer before starting Renegade. And the problem is, okay, what is new for founders? What is the opportunity for founders that is not being uh, served for now that we can maybe help figure out? And that's how we came up with the idea around supercritical stage. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that as we kind of move forward. Is somebody getting a delivery? Sorry. Yeah, that, that was me. I think <laughs> taking care of it though. The, the call box is like right outside of my office. Sorry about That's that. That's okay. I'm sure we'll be interrupted three more times by our 11-year-old. Um, okay. So super critical stage. What I'd read about Renegade when you first started raising the fund was that it was going to be focused on series B stage. So what is super critical stage in your mind? So the super critical stage is like, purposefully big because frankly, we don't think the letters really mean that much anymore. I actually started my career way back when as a chemist and a supercritical fluid is a state of matter that is neither liquid nor a gas, but both at the same time. And we feel like companies at the stage are, are the same. They're not true early stage companies. There's a product to market. There is some data. There's that early customer love. There is a, generally a sizable team. They're not the big growth companies yet. They're not ready to just raise a big growth round like I used to do at IVP and pour fuel on the fire. And so our sweet spot is early revenue, a million dollars a year up to a million dollars a month, 20 to 100 employees raising rounds that are between 10 and $50 million. And there are a couple of Series A deals in there, but we've led two Series A's that had 50 employees at the time of Series A. And that's not your typical Series A anymore. And some of that is that these companies just build teams faster or they're raising larger seed rounds or waiting longer. If you raise an $8 million seed, is that really a seed or is that a series A? So we really like don't think about letters. And our first deal was actually a C and we have A's, B's and C's in the portfolio, but they all sit in that sandbox. Companies are, are just much bigger today, right? The average series C company is three times the size that it was 10 years ago. 
And they're doing that in less time, right? And so what we were really seeing is that where these companies were getting squeezed was really around laying that foundation to build that organization and that team that could actually get you there. Because the truth of the matter is there's so much capital today. Capital is cheap, right? That means execution is expensive. Everything has shifted there. And it's not about executing for your companies. It's about preparing them to execute, preparing them to go be big, giant companies. It's interesting that you talk a lot about stage, but not about focus or domain expertise. Can you talk about what focus areas you're concentrating on? We're generalists in terms of industry. And we're sector focused on this moment, right, of post-product market fit before the growth growth round. Because I actually, if you look at what Rosin and I have done, we've invested in multiple sectors. So Consumer, Masterclass, Dollar Shave Club, Glossier, Warby Parker, Nate. We've done SaaS, Looker, FinTech with Build Technologies, Compass. We've done logistics and transportation with Keep Trucking. We've done Deep Tech. And the funny thing is, it doesn't matter which industry you look at, the super critical stage problem around, okay, how do I think about the organization that scales? How do I think about the exact team that I need? How do I think about my option pool, about my founder role design? All these founders are thinking about the same questions and the wheels are falling off the bus because things are working so, so well. And it's not about, okay, do you have the industry expertise? It's really, can you help me build a company that scales? It seems like the later stage market got super crowded. Then on the very nascent seed stage, things got really crowded. And the middle stage seemed like, still not as crowded. And now you've got Tiger coming down. You've got Lee Fixel's edition coming down. You've got Code 2 coming down. I just wonder, how do you compete against them? We, we think a lot about seed becoming the, a true part of the asset class uh, a couple decades ago. And the truth is, even back then, the big question was, won't my Series A managers just come down and do these deals? And yes, capital is fungible. People come down and do these deals. But what we've seen is that the firms that get their focus, right, become that next generation of winners, right? Like, in that crop that we saw, founders fund, I'm a founder, you're a founder, Andreessen and, and the market development program and all of the support, first round in the community, right? Mm-hmm. All of those things that were focused on these new problems became top tier firms, even though there were bigger guys back then that could have come down and done their deals. Right. And so a lot of noise in the market and a lot of folks sucking all of the air out of the room. But at the same time, you just have to really focus and go- do good deals. And also it's about finding entrepreneurs that see the world the way that you do and are excited to roll up their sleeves and work together. When you talk about helping companies at the super critical stage, can you give us some examples of what exactly you're doing to help these companies organize and accelerate? I think a big piece for us was realizing people became the true bottleneck, but not just the hiring piece, but actually how do you build the people machinery all the way from recruiting to the people development, to figuring out your org structure design, et cetera, et cetera. And something that's been happening to the people function is it's never been this important, but so undersupplied, right? Because it moved from this idea of don't get me sued, do my paperwork, compliance type of stuff to this super, super strategic role that reports into the CEO, because now it is the most important asset a company has. So what we saw is like, okay, a Series A, Series B company, Series C company really needs a chief people officer and other services, but they are not competitive because like you have even now growth stage pre-IPO companies doing searches and those searches aren't filled because it's undersupplied. But we can bring somebody to our team that can actually have the skill set that our companies would love to have and that can come in and help scaffold some of that stuff. So we have a, a chief people officer who was an operator, was the first GM of Uber East before launching it in San Francisco, took it from zero to hundred in revenue in less than two years, then went to Zoom Pizza to be head of talent and culture, really scaling organizations and growth teams in a very, very fast environment. So she's part of our team. 
And alongside what we do on the investing side, which is understand your metrics, understand your business engine, how do you prepare to really unlock large growth rounds, also help build this organization architecture. So things that we do, right? So this idea of founder role design, you come in as a CEO of a company, you do a lot of jobs, but what do you want your job to be five years from now? And how do you build the executive team around you that's actually going to unlock your superpowers and really empower your organization? option pool design. Do you have the right equity and the right incentive to be competitive and hire the best in the market, not just for today, but 18 to 24 months from now, org structure design, etc. And then a big part of it too is how do you manage your capital? How do you build an effective board? How do you leverage your board? Because it's not just about oversight. It's really about drawing that expertise. What are the, the KPIs that are really going to unlock follow on capital? What's the story you're going to tell the street, right? Because like Roseanne came from IVP, all that growth round of the PIPO round, et cetera, et cetera. So we can really help you from those earlier stages to really unlock the growth round and beyond. I also saw that you have a data scientist already, which I thought was interesting. So yeah, we have a head data engineer. He really mostly helps us on our internal work when it okay. comes to sourcing and tracking, picking up all the breadcrumbs and leading indicators that we can find. So one thing that we, when we started writing, we were like, how do we instrument and measure what we do so that we can actually get better, not just have backwards luck. And so we have Ismail who architects and implements a lot of this, but we design a lot of our processes with Annie Duke, who is a linguist turned professional poker player turned cognitive scientist, who's now our decision scientist, she wrote a book called Thinking in Bets and another called How to Decide. And we know from the past 20 years of behavioral economics and cognitive science, that our brain is really, really good at tricking us into thinking we made really good decisions when we didn't. Mm -hmm. And so we try to use as many of those principles as we can in our processes so that we can actually look back and see what did we miss and what was a good decision? What was actually a bad decision? Because the truth of the matter is there's no Midas touch, right? And we wanted a culture too of no Monday morning quarterbacking. Like, no, you didn't let me do this deal. And look, now it's a hundred X, which is so common in our industry. When you're generalists, though, there's just so much you could be looking at. What are you looking for? What do you need to see? You mentioned team size and revenue. How do you whittle that down a little bit? Yeah, so I think one thing that is so good about the stage that we invest in is these companies already exist and they were funded by somebody else before. So it's actually a known universe. If you're thinking about it from a data science perspective, it's actually so much harder to be a seed investor because any grad student or any engineer could become a founder. So that's actually more of an infinite problem. Ours is actually very tractable. And then it's, it's really, okay, these companies exist. They were funded by somebody else before. And then is applying the heuristics that Roseanne, myself, Chloe, Susan have had from decade plus and in investing and working at outlier companies. And it, it goes down to not just revenue and revenue growth, but quality of revenue. How can we actually proxy things around great cohorts and great engagement, right? And we do a lot of data that Ismail tracks, but also things that we develop by interacting with companies or by talking to co-investors and talking to the market, right? So it's a combination of breadcrumbs that the companies put out there in terms of, okay, who, the, who have they hired and what are customers thinking of their product? And also a lot of our heuristics. And like I said, a lot of it is not the exact number, but also how is that number created, right? Quality of revenue. Is it sticky? Is it a must-have product? Are you becoming a system of record? What is the velocity of adoption? And that's why technology alone can't do it. Can we talk about that in terms of your current portfolio? For example, a company like Nate, can you talk to us about what you saw in Nate that made you want to invest? 
Yeah, definitely. So we led Nate's Series A last month. Sorry, I keep hitting Siri. Whenever you say series, does Siri kick in? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we interviewed Alexa von Tobel once, and that was a disaster. Oh. <laughs> Amazon household. So we led Nate's A last month. Nate is a robotic process automation powered universal checkout company. There's an app that you can download. It's on iOS today that can buy anything that's not on Amazon on the internet with just one click. And what's so cool about it is that they don't need to integrate with merchants. They can literally make it work on any website, whether that merchant has signed up with Nate or not, because actually no merchants have signed up with Nate. So it creates this universal shopping experience and gifting experience and Pinterest-like experience, but everything is actually shoppable and viable. And you asked about themes and areas that we focus on earlier. And I feel like so many of our investments have come from themes that we thought about five, seven years ago. When I first started Adventure, there were so many universal checkout apps or affiliate links or social shopping, but they all struggled because they couldn't sign up merchants. It was very hard to get all these long tail merchants on board. And frankly, most of the good stuff on the internet that you're not buying on Amazon is from long tail merchants. And so signing up those SMBs is really, really hard. So none of those businesses really took off, right? And even if you think about Pinterest, at the end of the day, it's an advertising business. And so the pins that you see that you can buy are, are who's ever bid the most. It's not actually the product that you might most be interested in. So we love the concept that they could be merchant agnostic and bu- you could buy anything, but also the power of not being beholden to the merchant, not being beholden to advertisers to be able to actually let consumers interact with the products that they actually really want, not just who's advertising to them. I wrote about Nate for the newsletter and just looking at it briefly, I thought it sounded really interesting. The fact that you can buy now, pay later, save items, follow friends, lists. I've never really seen anything quite like it. I mean, it's so cool because when you really start to think about it, you can use this platform to buy anything on the internet mm-hmm. or the 60% of e-commerce that's not Amazon. What are all the amazing things you can do? You can help with financing options. I, I think the gifting is so cool. You can create these pin boards that are shoppable. Somebody showed me a, a baby list and I was like, oh, this is a registry, right? There are so many different things that you can build on top of the platform. It's interesting. It was a big Series A to your earlier point that the letter doesn't really matter anymore. It was a $38 million Series A that you led. How are you thinking about constructing your portfolio? How concentrated or not will this fund be? We think about 20 to 25 companies per portfolio with 12 to 15 core positions. At some point, you're bounded by correlation, but also how can we be taking advantage of really great opportunities and showing a ton of conviction when we you know, have companies like Nate, right, where it's an incredible team, the metrics are so compelling, and the opportunity is massive. I also wanted to ask you guys just about... Some of the trends we're seeing in the industry, it's exciting that there's so much capital and I'm sure it makes companies feel great when they've just closed around and somebody knocks on the door and says, hey, how about some more money and we're going to double your valuation. But you've both been investors for a long time. I'm sure that probably gives you pause as well as excites you. I'm just wondering what what your advice is to your startups when this happens to them, because it certainly seems frothy out there. Yeah. So there are a few dimensions to it, right? So Mm -hmm. one is you got to deploy this capital. And you got to provide a return on this capital and nothing comes from free, right? The more money you raise, the higher the valuation it is. And it catches up with you on the next round because you got to clear that watermark. So that is one thing. And then the other piece too is like sometimes when you're in a very competitive environment, you got to also look at what's happening around you. And 
sometimes if your competitors are raising and they're going to have a bigger war chest than you, it, it may be a reason to think, right? Because maybe they can outhire you or they can outspend you in certain areas or they can generate more traction than you. So you can't look at things just in absolute, but there's no free money. Yeah, there's so much liquidity that sometimes the tail is wagging the dog. And I think that there are so many founders that are being super smart and strategic about this. But then there are founders that are unwittingly creating more problems for themselves. We have one company where the the CEO had previously been, you know, a high flying company that raised $60 million. And they had had such an easy time raising cash that instead of building systems, they threw people at the problems. And that became basically just more and more management issues. So the way she's thinking about her company is it's all about laying the the infrastructure and actually building the systems and that framework so that you can deploy capital effectively, not throwing people at problems. Talking about so much liquidity, I also wondered what you guys thought of activity by these special purpose acquisition companies, these SPACs, they shattered records in terms of the numbers last year. I think this year has already shattered last year's record. What do you make of them? And also, are you competing with them given that they're suddenly being used to take companies public that are much younger and less mature than traditional IPO candidates? I don't think that any company we invest in is ready to like basically do analyst calls. <laughs> so like, right, I think you, you have to remember that at the end of the day, you still have to be public after spacking. There's a little bit of tail wagging the dog there. I, I think that spack size makes not, not a lot of sense. It really creates a weird target environment. But the idea that they're all three or $400 million implies what the target company valuations are going to be. And I think that that part of the market for high quality companies at the growth stage is so liquid that high quality companies are not using SPACs for the most part. One of our LPs went and raised a SPAC and he said that they had a $300 million SPAC and they got $4 billion of interest for it. Oh my gosh. Right? But since it's liquid, it's a different investor set. So I don't know. I'm not surprised that we've seen the slowdown that we have seen. Another thing I wanted to talk to you guys about, Alex and I were laughing earlier at a, a Twitter thread, maybe you guys saw, I think it was started this weekend, that asks people to write in five words how one might ruin a VC pitch meeting. And someone wrote, female founder walks into room, which made me laugh and also cringe. Wow. What are your impressions? I know. But what are your impressions talking with colleagues in the industry and with female founders? How would you rate the industry's progress? I'd give us a B minus. I think that there has been progress, but I think comments like this are are the epitome of we still have a lot of work to do. I mean, we do have one female-led company in our portfolio, and we hope to have more. It is a big missed opportunity, right? And it's not just gender. It's racial, diverse thinking, all of diversity. I think people sometimes see a female-led venture firm and they think, oh, how focused are they going to be on founding (laughs) female CEOs? So it sounds like it's definitely interesting, but not, maybe not like a, the, the number one priority. No, we're a great investors who happen to be female. And today we have five team members. We think diversity is actually diversity of experience and thoughts, right? I, I, I grew up in Brazil, a lawyer who started my career as an LP, then went into the VC side. Or Roseanne is an almost PhD in chemistry that built a company and Facebook platform, then went to early stage VC and then IVP. Susan operated in companies, right? Like we really think about the different mental models. And gender is actually just one of the lenses. And diversity is one of the core values of organization because we believe it provides better returns. One thing that's been really inspiring about all this is like the people that do come out of the woodwork who are so excited because representation matters. One of our LPs just wrote a note about how she's never seen that before and how amazing it was to see. And I feel like Renata and I discount it because we want to play in the big leagues. We want to sit at the same table as the boys. But 
at the end of the day, this is how this changes, right? We chip away at this and soon you won't ask this question anymore because it won't be topical. And that's the goal. Connie, I grew up fighting karate against the boys. If I, th- I thought about the girl thing too much, it wouldn't work out. So. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I three, Three-time black belt champion. I was telling Alex earlier, I'm like, God, I mean, honestly, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, don't fuck with her. <laughs> Do you feel that the diversity matters for LPs? Do you think that diversity is going to be codified in any way in the way that LPs are looking at investing in funds? Some really do and they lead with it. And others look at lagging indicators, right? Oh, let me keep with the existing way of doing things because the existing way hasn't been bad or it's working. The best ones are actually looking at, okay, what are founders thinking and what do founders care about? Because that's the leading indicator of future returns. And founders are picking diverse firms. Founders are picking investors who reflect their values, people that they're proud to be associated with, people that have their same energy, people that will go to bat for them and with them. And these are the returns of the future, right? Like whatever Cambridge tells you today are investments that were made in the past. And the, the leading LPs know this. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through the new fund and, uh, and hope to see both in person soon. Absolutely. Thank you. This is awesome. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening. We will see you back here next week.